Welcome back to Disconnect, the Outdoor Education Podcast. I'm Joël Charrière, and I'm so excited to be back with you. And yes, I know it's been a really long time, almost two months, but I promised that I would be back with more interviews in today's interviews with both Dr. Fenton Litwiller and Elise Rylander won't disappoint. Anyhow, I've always been a believer in quality before quantity, so I'm going to try to commit to doing one monthly episode. If ever you wonder what's going on, check me out on Twitter at Outdoor Edcast, and you'll see sometimes I'll just post a message saying, hey, episode coming up, but I'm working on an interview, etc. More about today's episode from Dr. Litwiller. We'll get insight into the leisure and recreation research taking place on the topic of queer youth in camp settings. Whereas Elise Rylander, a true visionary leader in the queer youth outdoor programming community in the United States, will be speaking specifically about the queer youth camps and her experience leading them over the past decade. I'm thrilled to have been able to connect with both of these guests today, and I'm so happy to be able to share these conversations with you. Before I get started with the literature review this month, I need to confess to something. When I interviewed Micah Meyer in the first part of the inclusion series, and even in the way that I named that, I've been kind of struggling with that. Um, kind of just a couple of things that I said to him, uh, and the simple fact that I called it the inclusion series. Um, I felt in a way that it diminished uh, the interview with Micah. And that's something that bothered me. And that's a part of being an ally is recognizing that, or, or maybe not recognizing, but just taking the time to stand back and look at what you do and see, you know, d- does that impact anything? And, uh, you know, At one point in the interview, I asked Micah what his favorite flavor of ice cream was. It sounds silly. It is a silly question. I actually genuinely wanted to know because, you know, the interview, he got me all worked up about a bunch of different stuff and I was really excited and I'd been eating a bunch of Ben and Jerry's ice cream recently because sometimes my wife and I splurge and we get ourselves a Ben and Jerry's ice cream. And it just kind of popped out. And and I thought, you know what? I, I did not ask this question to um, Ecodrama. I did not ask this question to Megan Zenny. And yet here I was asking this question. And I struggled after the fact saying, man, do I leave that in the inter- interview? Do I edit that out? Does it somehow diminish what Micah Meyer is doing? I chose to leave it in because I felt that I was overanalyzing everything. And yet I just wanted to confess that this was something that I've been thinking about. I also struggled with calling uh, the episode Inclusion Series Part 1 after the fact because I didn't want it to come across as a token gesture. I did not interview Micah Meyer simply because it was Pride Month. I felt that Pride Month was a great opportunity to reach out to someone and give somebody a, a, a bigger platform, uh, although Micah's platform, platform greatly eclipses mine. He's got thousands and thousands of followers. He doesn't need my platform, but I wanted him to talk about outdoor education and how outdoor ed affected him and how he's been able to connect with queer youth, uh, himself being queer, um, and and open up that sector again even more for what has been a historically underrepresented population. 
So I struggled after the fact, thinking, ah, again, did I diminish the value of this of this uh, interview by naming it as such, the inclusion series? Uh, and so I did not choose to uh, name this current episode inclusion series part two although it could be treated as such Um, but I didn't want to diminish in any way shape or form the interview and uh, the um, the points that Elise spoke to Um, so that's just a confession I wanted to make because I think that a part of everyone's journey, and you'll you'll hear myself say this in the interview, my journey as an ally is a long one, not because I have any prejudices against anyone, but rather because I am a straight, cisgendered, middle-class, white male, um, and that makes me historically among the most privileged of populations. And so I I have a smaller backpack, a smaller burden that I carry than other people. And my journey to try and understand other people's is simply longer. So my confession today before I started the literature review is simply to say that a part of being an ally is to look at what we do and take steps to change things. Um, and so, you know, as we ask our students to do, or as we do for our students, rather, as we demonstrate the behavior, I wanted to do that confession or that, yeah, that confession, um, freely today so that you could all hear my train of thought. And if that helps you be more comfortable in the way you look at your own, uh, thoughts and be self-critical, then great. Um, but anyways, I just needed to get that off of my chest. To kick off this episode's literature review, let's go back to 2002. In volume 6, number 2 of the Australian Journal of Outdoor Education, Annie Dignan writes an essay uh, hoping to convince readers that, and this is a quote, outdoor education perpetuates the notion of heterosexuality as the norm and the superior form of desire. I'm sure you could go back much further, but I wanted to start back just far enough, 18 years ago now, to say that the problematization of homosexuality in outdoor education is not new, neither in academia, neither in society. It probably goes without saying that homophobia isn't really new at all in society, but it's important to look at the literature specific to outdoor education to see when researchers began talking about it, just to understand, first of all, how far or all too often how little we've come and so in the abstract annie states that quote this process will involve placing heterosexuality under the microscope rather than homosexuality a line that i absolutely loved and stopped to reread a few times it's funny how turning the table on something you don't often think about can stop you in your tracks and this for me did it defined me in a tangible way heteronormativity which is to describe the process of normalizing sexuality through discourse that render lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, anything like that as deviant. I haven't done any gender studies myself, and I've been out of university for well over a decade now, um, and that was my second go at it. So, you know, I've been around long enough, but I've also been out of it long enough that I'm not really current on what's going on in gender studies. I'm literally learning this stuff as I go. And as I'm presenting it to you, I've, I've got maybe, a, you know, a month and a half of reading under my belt. Uh, and it's been really informative. So I'm hoping that you can kind of come along with me um, or maybe you're way ahead of me. But allyship is a road that we choose to tread together. So I'm asking you today to walk with me. 
Annie Dignan writes in this article, in relation to the outdoors, the effectiveness of the maintenance of silence is highlighted in the lack of research into issues relevant for lesbians and gays. And this will come up again in my interview with Dr. Fenton Litwiller. Uh, Therefore, this forced silence and invisibility of homosexuals plays a part in the creation of hierarchies of desires. Hence, it is imperative that outdoor educators understand the silencing effect that their attitudes demonstrated through their language and behavior has on all the participants in their group. This behavior can include the assumption of heterosexuality and the implied validation of heterosexual desire. I would suggest that most, if not all, outdoor programs actively reinforce heterosexuality as the norm and homosexuality therefore as deviant. This situation forces homosexuals to remain silent for reasons of emotional and physical safety. Now, this was back in 2002 when it was written, and you'll notice a lot of these same topics come up in my discussion with Dr. Litwiller. Uh, Annie Dignan also states the lack of research and overt heteronormativity in speech prevents queer folks from having a voice from being heard, which therefore perpetuates this heteronormativity. Now, this was 18 years ago. And while I was reading it, I did find that I, it felt somewhat antiquated at times, which I want to stress is a good thing, because even though I'm sure we could all make more effort to continue being inclusive in our language, Uh, There's been a great movement, especially on behalf of the education sector, to provide safe spaces for all. And at least the circles that I run in, I see tremendous openness of mind, spirit and inclusion, I would say, is the de facto norm. So the fact that it was antiquated at times or it felt antiquated, I felt was a really good kind of, you know, gauge. Sometimes you just got to go with your gut. But the fact that I was reading this and going, "Ooh, this is kind of cringy, made me feel that at least we've done something good. So I want to fast forward to 2018. Dr. Litwiller published an article in the journal Leisure, volume 42, number three, titled, You Can See Their Minds Grow, Identity Development of LGBTQ Youth at a Residential Wilderness Camp. Now, I was going to just talk about this, and as I was reading it, I kind of just got curious and noticed that uh, this um, researcher in particular actually taught at my alma mater. So I decided to reach out, kind of, you know, throwing a shot in the dark. You never know. Uh, it's hard to get researchers to come on on the podcast. Sometimes they've got a, they've got tremendously busy schedules, um, but it was a shot in the dark. And Dr. Litwiller answered my email. And so I was so happy to uh, be able to connect with Dr. Litwiller. So rather than tell you about the article, Here's my interview with Dr. Fenton Litwiller of the University of Manitoba. Speaking about his research paper, You Can See Their Minds Grow, Identity Development of LGBTQ Youth at a Residential Wilderness Camp. I'm here with Dr. Fenton Litwiller of the University of Manitoba. I'm thrilled that Fenton was able to join us today. So to set the stage a little bit, Dr. Litwiller is the author of the research paper, You Can See Their Minds Grow, Identity Development of LGBTQ Youth at a Residential Wilderness Camp. And to give you an idea, and please, please go look up the research. Um, You can look it up by name. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But the antecedent research discussed in the introduction is very clear that LGBTQ youth experience school extracurriculars and 
in the context of this podcast, at least, outdoor ed uh, and wilderness camps differently than their cisgendered straight peers. So, Dr. Litwiller, you cite studies indicating that lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer students feel unsafe, uh, how they feel the need to conceal their gender identity or sexual orientation, withdrawing from leisure activities for lack of safe spaces, challenging washroom situations or another thing that comes up, implicit or explicit discrimination from instructors, macro aggressions, to name a few. Um, add this to the list of other potential challenges, such as uh, eviction at home, physical or mental abuse for some, substance abuse, depression. And this is, as Dr. Litwiller says in the introduction, these are, these are peer-reviewed journals. The information coming here is not made up. Uh, Dr. Litwiller, the picture is dreary. Um, and for anybody who's listening, we all love working with youth. It's like a gut punch. So the next part was really, really interesting for me. Uh, it was like a slap in the face. It was like a wake up, you fool kind of thing. Uh, and you wrote, while it is important to acknowledge the struggles of LGBTQ youth and to continue to research both the challenges and necessary supports, it is also important to challenge unilateral notions that LGBTQ youth are at risk. Can you please unpack this sentence for me? Yeah, for sure. Um I think this is a this is a great dive into kind of the, the theoretical stuff. Um, but I think when you only talk about youth as at risk, um, we really focus on the wounded nature of their experiences. So as a researcher, that means that I might, for example, undertake a lot of surveys to understand um, their mental health, so depression, self-esteem, et cetera. Um, and then the actions that I might take around that is to make sure or to influence ease of access to mental health resources. And I think that's, that this is really important. Uh, I'm not trying to say that, that, um, that this work should not continue. It, it should continue. But when we only talk about um, youth as at risk, we can, it influences how we act. So my critique is that how we talk about something influences our actions. And if we never talk about youth as being joyful um, and creative in, in how they cultivate this in their daily lives, then that conscripts or prescripts what um, we might focus on in, in our research. So if we can acknowledge and also take action around the challenging context that youth, youth live in, but also create space in our rhetoric to understand youth, youth lives as having access to joy, um, instances where they can and be can be themselves and explore themselves, we're more likely to create opportunities that emphasize things like youth agency um, and and creativity. And so, for example, since writing this uh, manuscript, my research has really moved into exploring um, youth experiences with gender play. So I have a gender play workshop, and youth come, and we just explore gender through fun spontaneous and creative ways. So that's what I mean about how we talk about something influences what we focus on. And I really want to emphasize again, that I don't want to diminish the challenging context that youth, youth live in. But if we only talk about that, 
then it really prescribes our actions. Yeah, I, I, I want to say that I myself, or at least my colleagues and, and everybody I work with, we've all been guilty of this because sometimes in, in the such small amounts of time we have to meet together, uh, we are definitely end up speaking about the kids who are always at risk, at risk, at risk. And, mm-hmm. and we miss that context of everything else that they are. Mm-hmm. So your study was published in 2018. Uh, and at the time I see, I get the impression that there was really no research based on, I, I did a little bit of a background studies. I found some stuff dating back to the 1980s, but very little in, in between, uh, and very little beyond the school environment. Is this still the case? Is there still a um, lack of research kind of regarding outdoor ed or, or simply LGBTQ youth outside of the home or school setting? I, I think yes, for research that emphasizes youth voices. Um, but there has been some work um, since then, um, like pre-post survey stuff, mm-hmm. um, where, where youth are surveyed before the camp and after the, sur- uh, after the camp around their mental health and, and changes and shifts in their mental health. Um, and so, um, and that particular study showed decrease in depressive symptoms, for example. Um, and then there was another study that came out that just analyzed um, how the media talks about queer camps. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is some work around this idea of queer youth camps, but nothing really that focuses or emphasizes the youth voice. Oh, there's one other thing I wanted to note. Um, there is um, kind of a report online that some of your readers might be interested in, and it's called When Bunks Become Closets and How to Open Them, Making okay. Room for Queer and Trans Safe Spaces in Residential Summer Camps. Um, and in this report, there's a lot, a lot of the issues that I talk about in, in, in my research come up there too. Um, but it is a little bit more practically oriented, um, which is, which might be useful to some of your listeners. Okay. Well, thank you. I'm going to look for it myself and see if I can't link mm-hmm. to it in the show's notes. Um, yeah, I want to sure. dive into the actual research paper. Um, my listeners are mostly counselors, camp counselors, teachers, uh, and it goes without saying that every one of us had a, or out or outdoor and nature education had a profound impact on us, which is likely why we do what we do. And I think it goes without saying that all of us believe that queer youth should have access to all of these same experiences that we had. Uh, and one of the things that's noted in your study is that in order to achieve this, uh, and in order for LGBTQ youth to feel respected and safe together, uh, there's a big push uh, on behalf of many scholars to have segregated leisure spaces or rather queer only spaces. Why are these spaces necessary according to you? I, I think both, um, integrated and segregated spaces are are necessary. So both the inclusive space, but also segregated. And I think um, for a number of reasons, depending on where a youth might be in their gender journey, um, they might feel that, or uh, they might feel the need to be in a safer space or Mm -hmm. just where they're at in their lives, for example. Um, But my question for camps that are trying to be inclusive are, I mean, there's a number of ways to um, either explicitly or implicitly exclude um, youth from coming in the first place or having um, a, an experience at camp that wouldn't be inclusive for them. And in the, a lot of the camp literature shows that um, camps influence uh, spiritual or religious connections. And my question there is, in that kind of programming, are youth facing discrimination yeah. or are they feeling um, excluded? Because right. um, certain faith-based organizations might have overtly um, 
discriminatory practices. Yeah, totally. And uh, a lot of the camps um, that we um, go to, like that host youth camps, even mm-hmm. though the youth organization that is going to the camp is not faith-based, a lot of the, the camps are, are faith-based. Right, like they're, they're, they're so renting the, the space. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and that can... Um, that can cause some um, maybe angst or um, be a triggering experience, not to overuse that word, but, Mm -hmm. or or inappropriately use it. But um, I mean, the other questions I have too is some of the youth needs that I saw um, of the youth that came to camp was a real need for queer specific programming Mm -hmm. to talk about the concerns that are happening in their lives and, and cannot happen at an inclusive camp. Um, are trans youth who are accessing medical care? And just to emphasize that not all trans youth access medical care. Um, do they have access to knowledgeable care and continuation of care at camp? So that's another consideration. Um, and then what do you do? Most camps segregate their campers by gender. Yeah. Um, so, and most queer camps segregate youth by age. So um, some of the most contentious kind of structural um, facility-oriented issues are washrooms and cabins, yeah. um, which are gender-segregated, right, um, into kind of artificial boy boy and girl categories yeah. and keeping those campers separate from one another. So most queer camps take a different approach, and they acknowledge the complexity of gender and sexuality, and so they segregate by age. I feel like this is so the next are, frontier in public education, at least in Canada, because these right. are discussions that I've been having with colleagues for five years now, talking about how do we move forward if we need to bring gender fluid students on a field trip. And it seems like mm-hmm. the general consensus is to simply have uh, cohabitation, like everybody sleeping in one big room, uh, simply to avoid kind of any kind of gendering uh, of spaces. Mm-hmm. One of the things you also mentioned in your studies was that queer camp counselors working at integrated camps typically um, were victims of homophobia, often carried over from home, whether that be with the campers or other colleagues, and that the space wasn't always safe for them. So this mm-hmm. is not something that affects only campers. It's also going right through into the staffing mm-hmm. Um so one of the things I noticed in reading your, your research paper was that there seems to be a lack of uh, research, and we mentioned this pre- previously, about queer youth at camps, but there's an abundance of research, or maybe not an abundance, but there's clearly more research on segregated leisure opportunities for other homogenous groups, such as people with chronic medical conditions or with varied physical abilities. How well does the information coming from these research papers transfer over to queer youth? Yeah, I, I think it. I think it does. Um, so um, the importance of segregated camps for some of those studies that I was noting is just a. Uh, I think um, the the best quote from from that section is treating youth as if their lives were conventional rather than out of the ordinary. So especially for youth who have medical conditions, they're always treated as if they're maybe, maybe they're treated as if they're fragile. They're always segregated in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, and for them, the opportunity to go to camp was just to be around other youth who are exactly like them. And they're just like ordinary, right? They, they <laughs> right. stand out. Yeah. Um, and I think that's true for queer youth too. It's an opportunity not to be stared at, Right. you know? Um, and when I was talking about the microaggressions in the paper, um, that's kind of, you know, one example is always being stared at because 
uh, and which is a form of policing, right? It's like if you're being stared at and you don't want to be stared at, then you change your behavior or your other expressions, like your clothing, for example, or your hairstyle or who you're hanging out with so that you don't get stared at. Mm-hmm. Um, so just a break from that. So um, I think the importance of LGBTQ or 2S LGBTQ only spaces um, is in part a can play a process in identity formi- formation. Mm-hmm. So it's a chance for youth to be accepted for who they are, um, supported to explore their identities, not even to claim an identity, but just explore them. They can just be themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a lot of like individual kind of oriented stuff, but there's also cultural stuff, right? So youth learn about queer culture. They learn about language. They learn about expressing themselves in new ways that feels good to them. They can access mentors who are queer. They can have discussions that matter to them um, with other people for whom it matters also. So I think there's a number of individual and social kind of implications for segregated camps. I think those are all such important factors. I mean, I had been a camp counselor before I went into education. I can recall so many vivid conversations with campers where, you know, you you do go into those things and they're kind of, you become a sounding board for them as they kind of decide who they want to become. But in the absence Mm -hmm. of a person who's like you, I feel like that would be a really difficult conversation to have. Yeah. You wrote in the beginning of your study that... Uh, and, and this is a direct quote, no work that details the knowledge, skills, and attitudes of LGBTQ youth garner at a segregated camp. Does this make your study really the first of its kind? Um, I, yeah, I, I always hesitate to say that because then someone will find it obscure <laughs> study yeah. that, that totally contradicts you. But I, at the time of the writing, I wasn't able to find anything. And just to add the caveat to that, there's stuff that studies aspects of queer camps, right? right. So I, in the in, or in the literature review, I talk about a study that um, was about uh, the counselors, as you mentioned, the counselors who are queer, who went to camp that was not queer oriented. So there's all kinds of aspects of queer camp that had been studied, but I wasn't able to find anything that particularly centered youth voices mm-hmm. um, about how they felt about their own experiences. So on that note, uh, I've asked you a few questions kind of around the study, but let's mm-hmm. give those queer youth voices a voice. Tell me about your study. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and some of it, I, I think you could probably intuit from our conversation so far. But what I did find is that you uh, felt a sense of belonging at camp that was really cultivated by the 2S. LGBTQ camp community itself. So that included not only other youth, but the staff and the volunteers who were working there. Um, And, you know, one of the quotes from the youth is like, it's a break from the weird looks, you know, Mm -hmm. that they're always getting. And parents that maybe are trying to be supportive, but don't quite understand them and have a bit of an anxiety around their identities. Um, it's a place where they get to experience love and care from people who are like them and understand them. They get to feel a part of a community. One youth says, um, I feel loved there. Mm. Um, so developing new friendships, feeling a connection to the broader community. Um, so, and, and this kind of non-judgmental environment is really a product of, um, not policing normative notions of gender. Right. So mm. youth are not policed to conform to a social expectation of um, what they are supposed to look like. Um, and this often happens 
in daily living, um, in school, at home, uh, in other public spaces like recreation spaces, um, outright harassments or those microaggressions that I talked about before. Mm-hmm. So one of one of the youth said, um, this is a quote from them, campers don't really comment on people's body types or how they appear, um, which I thought was a, quite profound. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, there there isn't that kind of ex- gender expression policing that often often happens. Um, in, in everyday life. Yeah. And you also went on in your findings kind of to discuss, um, uh, identity development. And I feel like that was Mm -hmm. a a pretty important thread throughout most of the research. How is identity development? Maybe, um, maybe let's start with how is it described? Um, and then how would you go by measuring that because in in the purpose for the purposes of academia right everything has to be measurable yeah um yeah i'm probably part of the small part of the academic community who um it doesn't agree with measuring as a (laughs) as a mechanism hey qualitative research is just as good as quantitative research but (laughs) uh, not everybody thinks that but (laughs) so i think like uh i i have a lot of um uh, contestation with with the identity development work um, because a lot of the identity development work is you have an identity you choose it in, in the queer community you choose it once and you tell other people about that identity which is typically called coming out mm-hmm. and it's happened once it's kind of stressful but you kind of get over it um, and then you know you move on in your relationships but um, queer identities often don't work that way often mm-hmm. these are coming out with several different identities. Um, trying to kind of figure out what works for them or, you know, their social context change and allow them to explore themselves in different ways that they haven't before. But also you're always navigating queerness every all the time, every day, right? Yeah. So to say that you only come out once is um, is not really an, an accurate um, lived ex- experience for most youth, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, and to continue on with the, the um, research findings, but it was a chance for folks to try out new identities because um, of the safer space that was created. So, um, but, and, and when we typically think of try on new identities, we think of like sexual orientation and gender identity, um, different identities within those kind of spectrum. Um, but also youth were able to try on different personalities, which I think is really interesting Yeah. Um, because if you are muting your gender expression, um, in order to fit in, you're often muting aspects of your personality as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so camp was a place where they could be extroverted and they could take up space in ways that they might shy away from when they're at home. Um, and um, they can be cool, right? So they yeah. can, you know, um, there's cool kids at camp. And that's for some kids, m- maybe one of the first times they get to be a cool kid. Um, and I, one of the quotes um, that I have in in the results is, it's like, am I really like this? You know, this <laughs> astonishing kind of statement is like, I, I'm loud. Like, is that is that really me? Like at home, I'm so shy and I don't talk to anyone. And, mm-hmm. this, and that might be a product of your social context, you know, when you're, you're not made to feel comfortable. We also had um, a fashion show um, 
which with when I was talking earlier about creating spaces for youth to be creative and spontaneous and joyful, that was the place where yeah. youth could be spontaneous and joyful. They could be loud. They could be at the center of the attention because they walked kind of down the middle of <laughs> uh, a crowd of youth who are clapping and cheering for them. Yeah. Um, so I think um, the trying on new identities is not just gender um, and sexuality. It's also personality as well. So this is so true of all kids. I mean, anybody who works with mm-hmm. children knows that kids are always trying on new identities, right? <laughs> right. I, I can say this as a parent, my kid acts differently around different people. She's trying to, or yeah. he's trying to, whichever kid I'm talking about, but they're trying to impress someone or they're trying to act differently. And I see it as a teacher in high school. Also, I see, you know, different, the same kid in different context acting completely differently. So this is a co- completely normal behavior. I'm assuming then, because I don't know this firsthand, that it's a lot harder for a queer youth to do this, maybe outside of the context of a segregated camp. It can be, yeah. And I think the the study that I mentioned in the Lit Review about the queer counselors in an integrated setting or an all-gender setting um, really kind of illustrates that. Mm-hmm. It's like they muted their own expressions. They didn't tell people about their identities. They kept it secret or they navigated it um, carefully in terms of who they told. And um, it, especially in terms of the camp counselors, you, you can be blamed for, quote unquote, recruiting youth um, if your gender or sexual identities are revealed. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's an yeah. extra consideration for the counselors as well. Absolutely. So it's kind of kind of exhausting, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, segregated or, and safer spaces, um, um, I'll just allow for, I think people to be relaxed and to be themselves. Yeah. Not to get too political here, but the idea of recruiting youth, if I'm understanding that pr- correctly and I, I, it sounds like a foreign idea to me is that would that be considered like you know a, a gay male counselor trying to recruit a male camper as you know like like hey, let's go back like 50 years here but like trying to convert them mm-hmm. is that what it would be yeah yeah that's exactly that's exactly it so that's bonkers the gay agenda um i mean i don't think we necessarily hear that in the media as strongly as we used to but there's very subtle um of rhetoric and reactions um, <laughs> around that. So one youth in this paper, um, a quote from them, they talk about walking down the street with a button that says they're trans yeah. and parents gather their children and hide their children yeah. from that youth as if they might have kind of an infectious disease. Mm. Um, so that is a part of that rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Um as well. So, yeah, I'm going to lump that thought in with conversion therapy and put it off to Mm -hmm. the side. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. (laughs) I I did notice that something, uh, it it was interesting to me. You mentioned that sometimes with queer youth, the absence of familiar knowledge and support is unique to them. I didn't quite understand that. Do you mind clarifying what you meant by that? Yeah, sure. So that particular comment was, um, in relation to, um, kind of comparing youth who live with medical con- conditions, mm-hmm. that literature. So at that time or at that part of the paper, I'm kind of doing that comparison. So why is why is it queer camp different than camps that are specifically for youth who live with medical conditions? Mm-hmm. And one of the differences that was really apparent is that youth who live with medical conditions can often find understanding and support from their immediate families. 
Mm. Um, but when we're talking about queer youth, that is not necessarily their experience with family at all. We see a lot of rejection, um, discord, or even just the lack of really truly understanding youth around their identities. Um, so I think that's the the point that I was trying to make there. Yeah, no, very clear now that I've heard it from you. So one Mm -hmm. thing, and this is very important for the context of this, of this show, one thing that was notably absent was any type of change in environmental awareness of youth. Uh, typically, we think of camp as being these glorious, you know, sleep under the stars and kids go away feeling like, wow, I really got a good dose of nature. I feel reconnected. And we hope that that lasting change will give us, you know, future leaders who will value uh, the environment. But that was notably mm-hmm. absent from your findings. Mm-hmm. What, what, why do you think that is? Um, I think that the programming didn't emphasize outdoor connection. Yeah. So most camp programming intentionally does that, right? So there's canoes there. So you take the canoes out and you teach the youth how to canoe and then you give them some free time in the canoe and, and create these kind of formal and informal programming moments where youth can connect to the outdoors mm-hmm. and even like teach them the names of trees and things like that. Um, but at this camp in particular, I mean, there was programming and time to swim, um, campfires. There's definitely informal walks or just hanging around, but there was no real intentional programming around that emphasized that outdoor connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was just because what youth need or what youth in this context really needed was a chance to do programming around talking about their identities um, and, and other issues that were important to them, yeah. like the fashion show and planning for it, for example. Um, so I think that it's just because of the pro- the program emphasis. So to be clear, the, these two concepts are not mutually exclusive. It just wasn't designed with that mm-hmm. as a goal. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Um, I super appreciate you taking time to discuss your, your research paper with me. I encourage everyone to go and find it. I will try to, to give a link to at least where you might be able to read an abstract for it. And if you have access to, um, you know, a, a university library, or perhaps your, your employer is connected with um, some sort of an online database, maybe you can find a way to access it there. But um, last question then, Looking at your research findings, is the the camp experience important for queer youth? Yeah, uh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I think what queer camp does is allow youth um, to be themselves. And I think that's important for their mental health. It's important for their growth and development. It's important to learn who one is in relation to themselves Um, and also in relation to their larger communities, but also the queer community. Thank you so much again. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciated uh, chatting with you today. Uh, That if you're interested in reading the full uh, manuscript and you don't have access to um, a university library, you can email me and I will send you the paper. So to reiterate, if you don't have access to an educational portal of some sort where you can download academic papers, uh, reach out to Dr. Fenton Litwiller and uh, he will send you 
the full manuscript of that research paper. It is well worth the read. I encourage you to do that. I've put the uh, link to his profile in the show notes. And uh, a reminder that Dr. Fenton Litwiller is an assistant professor in the Faculty of Kinesiology and Recreation Management at the University of Manitoba. I did have one final thing to say um, about Dr. Fenton Litwiller before we proceed with the rest of the literature review. And this is a little something that uh, Dr. Litwiller mentioned kind of last minute before uh, I left the phone call with him. Uh, and it was that uh, there was a misprint, actually. The editors at um, the, the publication uh, changed one word in his article and it bothers him to no end and so you'll hear myself talking about macro aggressions uh, early on in the interview and turns out that's exactly what's written in the paper however dr litwiller had written it as micro aggressions and um, it's almost impossible i guess to go back and change anything in academia you kind of send it out and that's it it's done so for us we will read it forever as micro aggression in the honor of dr litwiller so the last uh, literature review piece that I wanted to mention today, and I won't, I'm not going to go into great detail on this one simply because it's, it's quite long. Uh, it's actually a chapter of a book. And so the book is called The Palgrave International Handbook of Women and Outdoor Learning. I will put a link to that in the episode notes. And uh, the chapter in question is actually the 35th chapter, uh, and it's called LGBTQ Girls Scouts Reflect on Their Outdoor Experiences. And the reason I find this to be really important and relevant is uh, in relation to the uh, brief discussion I had with Dr. Litwiller regarding faith-based organizations often owning the facilities being rented by whichever organization in order to uh, run their camps. And um, this can be problematic. And anyways, it's, a, it's, it's briefly touched on in this chapter. And it's really interesting because um, I don't know if it's still the case, uh, but I know that for definitely a long, uh, since, since its inception, the Scout modeled was a faith-based model. And so I'll read you a tiny little excerpt here from the book. Uh, per, the, the person says, when I was maybe 12 years old, I told my mom that I did not think it would be that bad to love a woman. Her response, Stephanie, I thought you'd say that one day. You enjoy hugging me for too long. Whilst my mother's understanding of sexual orientation has thankfully shifted, growing up in a home where the notions of incest and being queer were erroneously conflated did not allow for many opportunities to talk about and process my sexuality. And so this uh, it's a 15-page chapter um, again, as I mentioned, I'll put a link to it in the episode notes, but it's worth a read because it kind of gives a little bit more insight into the effect or the impact of uh, faith-based organizations on the process of growing up as a queer youth member of this, or of this organization. Up next is an interview with Elise Rylander, founder and former executive director or, or executive director emeritus, if you will, of Out There Adventures. Uh, she has been an outdoor educator and a guide since 2006 as an American Canoe Association sea kayaking instructor, wilderness first aid responder, has training in motivational interviewing, trauma-informed care, behavior management and de-escalation, positive youth development, a true leader in her community. 
Uh, Elise is also known for her unwavering work ethic and passionate defenses of the Green Bay Packers in Wisconsin. Cheddar, oh, a woman of my own heart. I, I could, like, cheese flows through my veins. Um, anyhow, here's my interview with Elise Rylander. I hope you find it interesting. I'm joined today by Elise Rylander, the founder of Out There Adventures. Hi, Elise. Howdy. Tell me a little bit about Out There Adventures. Yeah. Um, well, thanks so much for having me. And um, like you said, my name is Elise Rylander. Um, and for your listeners, I use she, her pronouns. Um, and I live in Bellingham, Washington, uh, which is on the ancestral homelands of the Puget Sound Salish and the Lummi peoples. Um, and yes, you are correct. I'm the founder of Out There Adventures. And now my title is Executive Director Emeritus. I stepped away from uh, officially being at the helm of the organization in November of last year after, oh gosh, the better part of a decade getting things going and five um, successful programmatic seasons. So like many other organizations, um, we're kind of in flux right now and of course. Um, have uh, had our programs sort of live on through partnership, uh, some of our partnership programs this summer and are thinking very strategically about what the future and the landscape of the outdoor recreation economy and outdoor education in particular will look like and how we can continue to be of service uh, in terms of connecting queer youth and young adults to outdoor opportunities. Out there adventure then, just from what I gather, you said you had five seasons, but over kind of 10 years of planning. What did a season look like at Out There Adventures? Um, it really changed rapidly every year. Um, so the, the sort of history or legacy story that, that I often tell about the organization is that we got our 501c3 status at the end of 2014 and launched our first uh, youth expedition or teen expedition in June of 2015. We were actually out on the water when the U.S. Supreme Court ruled on gay marriage. Oh, okay. um, yeah, so the timing was uh, was pretty perfect um, in that regard, and we that first season ran just that one trip. Um, so we spent eight days sea kayaking up here in the San Juan Islands, and um, I did outreach, in person outreach, in front of something like three hundred or over three hundred uh, queer high school students across the Seattle metro area that mm -hmm. winter, and we got two kids to come on that first trip. Um, so it felt more like a queer family vacation and less of a traditional <laughs> outdoor education experience. Yeah. Um, but it was absolutely amazing. And that gap between how many kiddos I was connecting with and how many came on the trip, I led us to realize that there were a couple of other programmatic pieces we needed to put in place in order to hopefully get more kids to participate in those longer summertime expeditions. So that mm was then the catalyst for the launch of our Queer Mountain School, uh, which is a day program series that we ran <clears throat> for a while um, and that we would do all sort of uh, sorts of things in the Seattle area, like going to a climbing gym for a few hours. We did hikes. We did intro to um, first aid, wilderness first aid. We did a cooking class and all of those programs were free. Um, they were all operating in spaces that were accessible via bus lines in Seattle um, and open to our full age range, which is 14 through 21. Wow. Um, so we did that for a number of months, probably a year and a half or so. Um, and then really got 
into, and then during the summertime, we were running our own multi-day programs here and there, but the numbers were really low as we were trying to gain traction. Um, and then we, we sort of pivoted more intentionally into partnering with much larger existing conservation and outdoor education organizations and helping them to create and ultimately sustain their own LGBTQ teen specific programs. Um, so now we just wrapped up our fourth summer uh, working in partnership with Northwest Youth Corps. So we've had six, I believe, cohort, cohorts uh, for five weeks at a crack of queer teens go out and do conservation work across Oregon and Washington. Um, we were supposed to have our third uh, LGBTQ teen backpacking course run um, between a partnership between Outdoor Adventures and Arbonne, California this summer, but obviously mm -hmm. uh, that did not happen. Um, so now our programmatic efforts are, are living out and are being lived out through the way that we support our partners in their helping to, to fit sort of within their model. Um, but the focus is to connect this really specific demographic to their programs. Yeah. So I want to back up a little bit here because you mentioned something called a 501c3. I'm Canadian. A lot of my listeners are also Canadian. What is this 501c3 designation? Yeah, um, I don't, I just had a conversation with a program partner up in Canada and I can't remember the exact verbiage that, that y'all use, but that's just our tax code, our, our okay. internal revenue, revenue service tax code yeah. um, that designates us as a, not, a charity nonprofit. So that's what allows us to get uh, public and private donations. Right. And so this is how you've managed to offer these programs free of charge. It sounds to me like it began very small. I mean, you said you had two kids on that first sea kayaking adventure, and then it, it evolved into day trips and now a lot of kind of advocacy and working with other organizations. But tell me, what spurred the creation? I mean, you founded this, you said, over a decade ago. What spurred, what spurred you to do this? Um, a mix of youthful optimism <laughs> and energy and naivete on how, what is actually needed to start an organization. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then also obviously seeing the gaps that exist uh, for LGBTQ youth in particular in mm -hmm. the outdoor education and, and recreation worlds. Um, I started working in the outdoor recreation economy when I was 16 mm -hmm. and as I continued to move through um, different opportunities within that landscape, I continued to see one, not a whole lot of people that, that looked like me. Yeah. Um, and two, I was, uh, I was also seeing um, not many of, of our younger folks in the queer community choosing to participate in, in these different programs. Mm -hmm. And anecdotally, um, when I would do a little bit of digging, I would hear things like, I don't know if that's going to be a safe place for me. The bathrooms aren't going to be in line with my gender identity. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and in, if we are honest, um, in the U S and, and in Canada, you know, the big W wilderness idea has been, most often perpetuated by um, white, you know, middle class or or upper class Christian, able-bodied, straight, cisgendered men, and so mm -hmm. the stereotypes of the culture, I think, were another uh, component that would prevent, you know, that particular demographic of LGBTQ teens from from being really excited about potentially pursuing 
even just a, a recreational hobby, you know, because there was so much fear around what's it going to be like in those situations. Um, mm. So all those things kind of came together and I started putting the pieces together um, to more fully flesh out this idea when I was a junior in college at the University of Wisconsin at Madison and carried that idea with me um, for a couple of years as I um, kind of figured out what I was going to do um, and moved to Seattle in 2013 um, to, to really start putting this together in earnest. Mm-hmm. Um, so filled out all the paperwork and got all of those pieces together. Um, and it was just sort of full, full steam ahead. But from the age, I would say from the age of 21 through now, you know, figuring out how to have my life kind of fit into the promotion of, of OTA has been at the crux of, of everything. You know, I've, I've made moves and many, many decisions, um, not always economically in my favor in service of, of keeping this thing going. Yeah. A lot of the things you mentioned in there, I feel are, are things that I myself have struggled with, uh, for the, for my listeners, they'll already know that, uh, you know, I, I am that I'm that cisgendered middle-class white male. Uh, I, I had a profoundly, uh, positive experience in the outdoors when I was younger, which led to me doing the things I'm doing now. But, uh, I also recognize that, you know, my journey of allyship is a long one because I'm historically that kind of most privileged of demographics and, uh, you know, making my outdoor classroom a safe space is something that I kind of always have to remain aware of. Um, so it sounds like out there adventure has kind of moved a lot in the direction of helping other organizations deal with this. Can you give me an example of maybe something that you've, you've created with another organization or something that you've managed to, to change that has had a, a positive impact for the queer youth community? Yeah. Um, I mean, well, I, I will just say that all of our partners have always been amazing uh, and we really wouldn't be able to do the work um, that, that I want the organization to be able to do without, without that support. Um, and one example that I often refer to when, when we talk about partnerships that have, have really taken off in this really amazing way is our relationship with Northwest Youth Corps. Um, so I was approached by Jay Satz, who is in senior leadership for them and has been in the conservation world for a long, long time. Um, in 20, I guess it was 2016, um, and we, I, I still remember that day we had coffee at this little coffee shop in downtown Seattle. Um, and the administration was the federal administration here in the U S was changing. And Jay is well connected within the conservation space and the park service and, and whatnot. And he said, you know, we have this pot of money, um, that we could use to support an LGBTQ teen conservation crew, but we need to move fast um, mm-hmm. because I'm not really sure what's what's going to happen. Um, so we, I think that was ultimately <clears throat> in service of us getting this program off the ground quickly. Um, so we launched, we launched a program that first summer in 2017. And the format is, it's your regular five week long conservation core program for teens. We're working with um, kiddos that are, I would say probably between like 16 and 19 or so. 
Um, and they go out and they're paid a stipend and they do conservation work, you know, for five weeks. And that depends what they do kind of depends on where they're at, but it's everything from, you know, creating different barriers by moving rocks and other natural materials to cutting back a lot of Himalayan blackberry and, and all sorts of things. Um, but the program is led by queer crew leaders and all of the, the members, the queer, the uh, members of that conservation corps are queer. Um, so th- I think that's a great example of, of the way that our partnership was sort of came to fruition and, and then it blossomed over the years. Um, and what I didn't realize at the time was that that to the best of our knowledge and no one has, no one has checked me on this thus far. So I, I'm going to keep saying it until I get, <laughs> until I get proven wrong. Um, to the best of our knowledge, that program is the first ever queer youth specific conservation corps program in the United States. Yeah. Um, and we actually won, um, a, a national award last year for project of the year. Congratulations. Um, so out of, yeah. Yeah. It was really amazing. Um, and one of the crew leaders was able to go to Washington DC and got to meet, um, you know, Congress people and legislators and, and talk to, you know, speak to the work that we do. So it's a really full sort of full circle way yeah. to see the work, be able to help support and amplify that next generation of leaders of queer leaders in the outdoor space. Yeah. Well, you answered one of my questions in there is whether or not you knew of any other organizations doing what Out There Adventures does. It, it sounds unique. I mean, to me, I haven't heard of, of an entirely uh, queer program that does kind of what you guys do. Uh, it, congratulations. I mean, it's a huge accomplishment. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, and, and something to also be recognized is that we we stand on the shoulders that have come before us. And there is a really interesting history um, and I apologize to your listeners because my my focus is obviously this within the context of the United States. That yeah. there's a really interesting um, f- history that is underground uh, in the outdoor education world, even within the U.S. That connects to the queer community. You know, Colorado Outward Bound School was was actually running queer backpacking trips in the 90s. They just couldn't mm. openly market them as such. Yeah. Um, and then when that sort of cohort of instructors moved on to other things, I think the program kind of died off. But um, there, what there is actually in, in Outward Bound in particular a a pretty big group of queer folks that are you know, queer elders that have been doing this work in some form or another, but on the side, you know, and kind mm-hmm. of quietly. Um, I talked to uh, early on in my process. Um, one one of these individuals and, and he had the exact same idea that I had, but about 10 years before me. And it was just too, too much too soon kind of thing. It was too cutting edge. We, I felt like we were almost too cutting edge when I started out. Um, but, you know, so yeah, we are unique and also, you know, it feels important and incumbent upon me to, to make sure that we also, we all also recognize that history um, that can be erased, you know, and yeah. for the queer community in particular, it's, it is difficult to find those stories, but I am always so thankful and overwhelmed, um, with, with many emotions to know that like those stories do exist. It just takes a little bit more time to, to find them. I find it funny that you say you're standing on the shoulders of, of those who came before you because your shoulders will be those that others will be standing on 
What do you hope out there adventures will do in the future? Oh gosh. I mean, I think we this year, perhaps more than, than any other year are at a really um, interesting sort of juncture. And I, I don't, I don't honestly know how to answer that question <laughs> in, in total anymore because things have changed so much. But um, my, I, I was having a reminds me of a conversation I had with a mentor of mine maybe two or so years ago, and um, I was really struggling with with a number of things as it relates to our work, and and one of them was this idea of scalability. And and if if I'm being honest, I was having a hard time because. I was feeling frustrated with how much of a, how much of a lift, how much work, how much of a hustle it has been mm-hmm. and, and feeling like <clears throat> in, okay, in spaces I was, I was sort of being erased or not forgotten and that didn't feel good, you know? Yeah. And, um, and he said to me, you are going to have to make a choice at some point, whether or not you want to be able to support three or 30 or so kids um, you know, going out on one of your trips every summer, or if you want to support like 300 or hopefully 3000 LGBTQ teens going out in, in some way or another. In the first situation, you get to take credit for all of that. Cause you're going to be running those programs in house. Mm-hmm. And in the second you, that's going to happen because other folks have adopted the work that you have done and you're, they're probably not going to know you. Those kids aren't going to have any idea who you are. (laughs) You know, you don't get to take credit for it, Yeah. but the magnitude or the scalability of it is going to increase exponentially. And so what do you want? Right. So on the one end, it kind of feels thankless, but you have to recognize that the scope of what you're doing is so much bigger you know, is it, is it worth the trade-off? Right. And I think the answer is yes. <laughs> Always. Yes. yes. It's just hard to kind of swallow that pill sometimes. It is. It is. Especially when you're, when you're talking to somebody who, you know, has put their blood, sweat and tears into something for so many years. Yeah. Um, and, but yeah, it was a clear, a really wonderful clarifying moment for me because I absolutely, you know, was like, Oh shit. Yeah. I want to be able to support thousands of kids getting outside mm-hmm. in these ways every summer. So that's a long-winded way of answering your question in that I hope that our programs, the legacy of Out There Adventures can exist and through other organizations that maybe I don't even work with directly or help support directly, but that just knowing that we did it, they can do it too. I mm-hmm. hope that that's part of our legacy is being able to have that spread across the country because <clears throat> I think even when we as we continue to strive towards more true equity spaces where folks who are like you in really particular ways are going to continue to be important spaces to have, you know? Um, And so I I think that the longevity of our programs will continue to exist for quite some time or the need for those programs will continue to exist for quite some time. And so I hope that what we can do now is to help support that and whatever that that looks like, whether that's just being a supportive email, like you got this mm-hmm. or really helping to get in there and collaborate in the ways that we have with other partners. Yeah. So if you don't mind indulging in maybe a little bit of reminiscing, what are your, some of your, I guess, favorite memories of actually running the out there, out there adventure trips? Um, <laughs> oh gosh, there's so, so many. I mean, 
that first trip that we ran was obviously monumental in in many ways. And one of the stories I tell about that trip in particular is um, one of our two participants, Xander McRae, um, who I I have had this conversation and told the story many times, so I feel comfortable naming him. Um, he uh, was embarking on his journey in taking testosterone for the first time and was going to need to take a, a shot of testosterone while we were out on this trip. And so we got to actually help administer his first shot of testosterone that was outside of his doctor's office on yeah. this Island, um, <laughs> Doe Island that's, that's out in, in the San Juans. Um, and I, I remember that to me, that felt like the quintessential moment that OTA was intended to help support, you know, is to be yeah. able to have that kiddo participate in that program wherein in other programs they might've, they probably would have chosen not to, cause they're like, I'm not going to have this instructor that I don't know that looks nothing like me and doesn't understand anything about this situation, administer the shot while we're in the middle of kayaking out in the middle of the, of wherever, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so that that was one of those really profound moments that that has always stuck with me and and then I mean every group of of kiddos that I get to instruct it's just it's so fun you know I I have been in outdoor education and working with youth outside since since 2006 um and I no offense to the other groups of kids I've worked with but you get a group of queer teens together. It is just the most fun group of kids that I have ever had the pleasure of working with. Um, and it's hard to kind of describe that nuance. So folks will just have to take my word for it, but <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a, it's just a total blast. And it's so amazing to see them come really come out of their shell in profound ways that they haven't been able to before. Mm -hmm. And so what was the, what was the community response? And, uh, you know, it's, it I, I feel weird speaking in the past tense about this because, uh, before actually our conversation, I wasn't aware that out there adventures had for the most part sounds like stopped running programs, but is doing more partnership. Um, so I, I feel bad speaking in the past tense because everything you're describing sounds so just outstanding. What was the community response to, to our programs overall? Yeah. It's always been overwhelmingly supportive. Um, and, and from folks that uh, I wouldn't say that I would be surprised that they would be supportive, but you know, I mean, that's how, how our partnerships with Northwest Youth Corps with Outward Bound California, those things were started because those organizations had already identified a deficit internally and understood that they were not necessarily working with this population in the best way that they could. Um, and to me, you know, that, that is like, that's an example of, of the exact kind of response that you want to get from the community. Mm -hmm. um, we've never gotten any, I've never gotten any sort of pushback um, criticism or anything, um, which is, is really quite astounding. And, and I think also unfortunately speaks to what a profound need there is for programs like ours, or there are for programs like ours, yeah. um, across the country. Folks are so, they are, there's so much to, to be done to help bridge those gaps <laughs> that, 
Um, sometimes I wonder if we are actually offering the best quality programs. Cause I feel like, you know, it's a bit of that situation where you're like, well, it's better than nothing, you know? Yeah. Um, but you know, then I recognize the work that the quality work that we are actually doing. So yeah, it's been, it's been really, really amazing. I will say in the earlier years, we, we definitely did experience some, um, some resistance that was masked in, in pretty interesting ways. Um, so I've never, I've never gotten bigoted outright, you know, um, hatred or, or sort of opposition to our, um, to our work. But in the early days, there were a few, um, uh, brand sponsors and other organizations within that underneath outdoor recreation umbrella in the U S that I approached about our work, um, that would use really coded language to essentially be like, that's too, that's too radical for us right now. Um, and so that was really frustrating. And now, and now I see those same organizations or same companies very much jumping on the pride bandwagon in June. And, um, so they, they got there eventually, but they were not where we needed them to be, you know, just five or so short years ago. Yeah. And what was the impact on your immediate, I mean, here, your queer community when you began running Out There Adventures? Yeah. Within the queer community, the reception has always been amazing. I mean, consistently I'm getting feedback, like, I wish this had been around when I was a kid. Um, so many folks wanting to help support or, you know, participate as a volunteer in our programs, um, because they, you know, queer adults recognize the amazing opportunity that our, our programs can create, Mm -hmm. um, for that next generation. And then from the kiddos themselves, um, I think all, but maybe one participant in our entire history has had nothing but absolutely glowing things to say about our, our time that we spent with them. And, and I think for me, because teens are not necessarily always so forthright with their enthusiasm, um, what, what feels best is when we hear from the parents and we always hear from the parents after a Mm -hmm. course, um, you know, lots of things around how this changed their, their kid's life. We actually got an email um, in the beginning of our shutdown quarantine situation in, in this past spring from a parent of a youth that had participated in our Outward Bound California collaborative program last August, talking about how much that program has still positively impacted their child's life and how that they were sure that that program was helping their kiddo move through the pandemic and quarantine and all of that, that fear and those unknowns more deftly than they would have, you know, before they had gone on that course. Um, so that was a pretty amazing, uh, email to be able to receive. Yeah. Just, just out of curiosity, one, I mean, this is huge in any kind of outdoor programming, people who graduate out and then become involved with the organization. Is this something that you've seen in your organization? Yeah. So we have a really great story um, with our, our conservation work in that our first group of kids that went out um, that first summer in 2017, there was a, a crew member um, that participated on that crew. And then he actually came back um, and worked as a, they cre- the organization kind of created a position for him. So he was um, like a, a crew leader in training 
was yeah. the position that he sort of held an intern position. Um, and so he helped support the, then two, we had two back-to-back crews that went out that summer. Um, so he moved from participant to this intern position, um, to help support those crews and was out for 10 weeks that summer with, with those two queer crews and is continue. He's now in college and is continuing to pursue a career in conservation. Um, he came and spoke at our LGBTQ outdoor summit, which is a conference we hold every year. Um, so he spoke at the one that we had in Colorado last fall, um, and to the best of my knowledge is still, you know, continuing to pursue that path in, in conservation, um, because he was able to participate in our program. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, congratulations, everything you're doing is just so kind of groundbreaking, really, truly groundbreaking. Um, I, I wish that more of it would be accessible, I guess, on a wider scale, which sounds like what Out There Adventure is kind of moving towards in terms of partnerships with other organizations. Um, because as much as the queer community, I believe, needs their own programming, getting them involved in kind of the, the wider general programming is and should be the ultimate goal. And I believe that ultimately getting inclusion right across the board in a common program should be the ultimate goal. Um but I found you through an organization called Diversify Outdoors, and uh, I reached out to you. It was in it was in June, and I recognized probably everybody's super busy with Pride Month. But I had just started my podcast a few months earlier, and I was kind of just reaching out for ideas. Uh, and so you got back to me. Can you tell me a little bit about Diversify Outdoors as an organization? Yeah. So I um, I don't actually remember the exact date that I you know would have gotten involved, but. I did have a phone call um, with Danielle Williams, who's the founder of Diversify Outdoors, a couple of years ago, because um, we sort of swirl in similar circles in the outdoor rec space in the U.S. and um, and that was was how I you know got involved. And she was trying to create a platform um, to support that that sort of next generation of leaders in the outdoor space. They're folks who um, were, are not the sort of quintessential you know white male outdoor leader that we, we typically think of um, and create a platform for those folks to be able to connect to each other and also be connected to by brands and other organizations that were looking for support in particular ways. Um, and, and that work has then, you know, blossomed in, into other different areas and, and helped be the catalyst um, for a number of other projects that are, are seeking to continue to build on that idea. Um, and so the other one that's that's out there that folks should definitely check out is the In Solidarity Project that's headed up by Teresa Baker. Um, and that's another great resource as well to, to help get folks connected to different movers and shakers in the outdoor space that have different lived experiences and different skill sets um, and, and are often underutilized um, when it comes to all sorts of different types of work in the outdoor rec economy. Thank you so much, Elise, again. Congratulations on everything you've accomplished um, and congratulations ahead of time for everything, everything that you will continue accomplishing because it, uh, <laughs> I mean, the, the story behind out there adventure is really inspiring. And I'm hoping that anybody, as I mentioned before, who looks back will say, you know, these are the shoulders that I stood on and they, they might uh, recognize that yours were those. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I really appreciate it. So two things that came out of that interview that were not mentioned in the interview. Uh, If you're looking for resources on inclusion, 
Elise did mention to me after the conversation was over uh, something called the Avarna Group, for which she used to work. I have put a link in the episode notes to the Avarna Group. There's lots of great resources there you may want to access. And if you were interested in partnering with Elise Rylander, maybe you are looking for advice. You want to, uh, uh, maybe you're a camp owner and you want to know how to better include LGBTQ youth in your programming. Uh, she said the best way to reach out to her is actually via Instagram. So I will link her Instagram in the episode notes also. In closing today's episode, I want to thank Dr. Fenton Litwiller and Elise Rylander for taking time to share their stories and their knowledge with us. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, taking a closer look at the queer youth camp experience and that you may have found something of value that will impact your teaching. If you like the show, please subscribe. And since word of mouth is by far the best way for me to reach a wider audience, if you thought this episode was valuable to you, please share it with a friend. I can always be reached by email at disconnectpodcast at protonmail.com or via Twitter at Outdoor Edcast. See you next time.